Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life he gives. So good morning. I'm Abby. It's really good to be with you this morning. Um, If you've been here at all in the past month, you'll know that we've been turning our attention to living into three things as a church and as individuals. And these are the three things, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. And so this year, we're really focusing on being with Jesus well. And next year, our theme will be becoming like Jesus, and the year after that, doing what Jesus did. But of course, as you know, those things all overlap. So this morning, and I'm going to invite Katie up, who's going to read our passage, we're going to um, engage the theme of being with Jesus, and we're going to focus on what specifically can get in the way of being with Jesus, which is our resistance to Jesus. So let's look at a story from the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry, he's calling his disciples. One day, as Jesus was standing by the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and his companions were astonished at the cache of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything and followed him. Thanks, Katie. So here we have Jesus teaching some people on a beach. And Simon Peter is there, not because he's listening to Jesus teach, but because he's a fisherman. He's worked all night. He's coming off of a very long shift. He's cleaning his nets. The shift has been unsuccessful. And this rabbi comes along and and, and steps into his boat because maybe people can see and hear him a little bit better. And he asks Peter to just push him off just a little bit. And then after Jesus finishes teaching, he asks Peter to to put, put out further and deeper and to let down the nets for fish. And Peter says, there's been no fish all night. Are you kidding? (laughs) But since you say so. And suddenly the fisherman's great astonishment that there's this overwhelming catch of fish and the nets are tearing. And there's a shout out for the the fishing partner, Simon's partners, to come and help. And then in the midst of the glory of this miracle, Peter falls to his knees before Jesus. And what is Peter say? Does Peter say, wow, that was amazing. Thank you. You are truly God. I I worship you. I want to follow you. No, he says something very different, very counterintuitive, very strange. He says, go away from me, Lord. 
I'm a sinful man. In other words, Peter says, depart from me, leave me. You're too holy for me. I'm unclean. I don't deserve to be in your presence. Your goodness is too much for me. Your holiness is too much for me. And so rather than embracing Jesus's presence, Peter begins to withdraw from Jesus's presence. Do you see Peter's resistance here? Do you see his resistance? I wonder if this, is re- this resistance is something that you can relate to. I know I can. Because I think as human beings, we're pretty good at resisting God. In fact, we do it a lot of the time. I think it's the default mode. And I think half the time we don't even realize when we're doing it, right? But why should we resist God when he is good? And we know that he is love. And why is it that sometimes, even when we don't want to resist him, we resist him anyway? Well, let's look at Peter's response a little bit more closely. Peter says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. What do we make of that response? What's going on there? I believe that Peter got something right here and that he also got something wrong here. So let's start with what Peter got right. What Peter got right was that he called himself a sinner. Now, now we don't know anything about Peter's past, actually. We can't name his sins leading up to the moment in which this story took place. But we know that he was a broken human being, just like all of us, right? And of course, we see his brokenness later on in his story as he's navigating life with Jesus and the disciples and, and his pride begins to rear its ugly head here and there and his selfishness here and there. And then uh, this culminates in Peter's most famous sin, his darkest night, the, the night of Jesus's arrest. When Peter declares publicly that he doesn't know Jesus, he's lying publicly. He's also betraying his good friend and trusted rabbi who happens to be the Messiah, the Son of God, God himself. Jesus is lying about knowing God. So Peter got it right when he said, I'm a sinner. Now, I don't know how you respond to that, how that makes you feel when when Peter says, I'm a sinner. But personally, I find his confession here really refreshing. And I think that's because here we have an example of someone who knows the truth about himself And doesn't try to pretend to be something that he isn't. Scripture says in 1 John, if we claim we have no sin, we are fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. So Peter doesn't claim to be without sin. And his words here give me permission to be more honest with myself about myself and with God about myself and also with other people about myself. You know, always pretending to have it together is a terrible pressure that we don't actually have to live under. So Peter got something right. He was a sinful man, but he also got something wrong. He made a wrong assumption about God. Here's what he got wrong. He thought Jesus wouldn't want to be with him if Jesus knew how sinful he was. He thought that because of his sinfulness, Jesus would have no real use for him. Peter didn't realize that Jesus's love absorbs our unworthiness, that Jesus's love bridges the gap between our sinfulness and his holiness. 
and that God's love is always big enough to make up the difference. Would anyone agree with me on that? Any amens there? God's love is big enough to make up the difference. That's our hope. Now, Peter wasn't the first to get this assumption, uh, to have this assumption about God, to get this thing wrong about God. When we look back on the Old Testament, we see a number of people uh, uh, running away from God for these uh, similar reasons. And if we go way back to the beginning of humanity, who else do we see withdrawing from God's presence because of their sinfulness? Stepping back, hiding from God. I have an art image here that will give us a clue. Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve in Genesis, they live in the Garden of Eden and they walk with God in the cool of the day and they have this beautiful relationship with God. But then one day they choose to do what God has explicitly asked them not to do, right? To eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens? Their eyes become open to their nakedness. They become ashamed. And as you see in this picture, They hide from God. Here's uh, what Genesis 3 says. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. This is the moment sin has entered the human experience. And it's the moment that along with sin, something else has entered the human experience. Shame. Because you see, sin and shame go hand in hand. And here's the thing about shame. And I don't want to miss this because this is really important. If you only hear one thing today, hear this. Shame distorts our perception of God. Shame messes with our ability to rightly perceive God's love for us. It's almost like we're looking at God through this really dirty window. And even though he's really beautiful on the other side, and he's completely loving on the other side, the dirt on the window messes it up. And sometimes we can get a glimpse of that, but sometimes he looks like maybe a little bit like a monster. That's what shame can do to our perception of God, right? Let me ask you a question in this story about Adam and Eve. Did God's love for Adam and Eve change? No, didn't change. But their perception of him changed, right? Because their ability to accurately perceive his love has been compromised by their shame because of their sin, right? And so now instead of trusting him, they're suddenly afraid of him. They go off into the woods and they hide from him. They're resisting God. They're trying to get away from God. Thankfully, what does God do in this story? He follows after them. He comes after them. He pursues them in love. He comes and he finds them. And and even though they turn away from God, God doesn't turn away from them. He actually turns toward them even more right? This is love. God's love pursues them when they hide. 
Here's where we also see God's love in that story. God provides for them, right? We, if we read a little bit longer in the story, a little bit further, you'll read about how God clothes them in their nakedness with animal skins. So God provides a, a covering for their nakedness. He, pro, he provides for them. And he also does another thing out of love for them. He protects them. Now, this might not look like love for us in the story, and it might not have felt like love for them, but God required them to leave the Garden of Eden because he was protecting them. And this is very clear in, in, the, in the story. God is protecting them from eating of the tree of life in their sinful state, and, and in which case they would become immortal in their sinful state. God is being merciful to them, and he requires them to leave the garden for their own good. He's not punishing them. So God loves Adam and Eve, and we see it in the story in his pursuing them, his providing for them, his protecting them, and he does one other thing for them, and it also starts with a P. He prophesies over them. He speaks of what is to come, right? And, and, and it's not an easy word, actually. It's a pretty hard word. He says, for instance, that when they eat from now on, it's going to be by the sweat of their hard labor, when they have children, when they, when they reproduce, it's going to be by the pains of another kind of labor, childbirth, right? And I think God is saying these words not as a curse, but as a mercy to let them know what's happening so that when it does happen, they don't blame God. They realize, oh, that's the result of the choice we made. That's the result of our sin, Right? And God also prophesies a hope on the far horizon, a day when the seed of Eve would crush the serpent and crush it on its head. Now, it would, uh, the seed of Eve, of Eve, the scripture says, would also be bit on its heel, but it would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And this is the first picture, the first prophetic picture that we have of the Messiah, of re- God's rescue plan, Jesus. So do you see God's love for Adam and Eve here in this story? How it hasn't changed for them even when they chose to to sin. How it keeps pursuing them and providing for them and protecting them. So let's get back to the story now of Peter and Jesus on the beach. Do you see a parallel here between these two stories? Peter's doing just what Adam and Eve did, isn't he? He's kind of like pulling back. He's hiding from God. And why? Because the shame of his sin has distorted his perception of God, and he can't accurately perceive God's love for him. Do you ever find yourself resisting God, pulling back, maybe even hiding from him? When does that happen for you? What what are your patterns of resistance? Let me share with you two patterns of resistance that I've noticed in my own life. And one is when I've done something or I've said something that I'm not proud of. And that feels yucky. And usually I end up fixating on it and I especially fixate on what other people might have noticed and what they might be thinking about me. And that doesn't really help. And then I, I give up on that and I try to distract myself and, and maybe I just gravitate towards something that's numbing, like watching a movie or, or maybe I throw myself into, into work or, or, or busy work or cleaning because I just want to feel productive and maybe I can displace that yucky feeling with a good feeling of productivity, but it never really quite does the trick. And at some point, I catch myself and I realize, oh, I haven't turned to God yet. And at that point, I have a choice. Do I turn to God 
Do I keep resisting God? Do I surrender or do I, and confess, or, or do I try to manage this on my own? And my conscience tells me I should turn to God. I know what I should do, but I don't always turn to God right away. Sometimes I resist. Sometimes I hold out for longer than I'd like to admit. Why? Because my shame has distorted my perception of God's love for me. And I begin, and this is what happens in the depths of that shame, right? I begin to project things on God that aren't actually true, like anger. God is angry at me. I don't want to face him. God is disappointed in me. If I turn to God and he's disappointed in me, man, that's just going to make me feel shame twice as intense. That's not what I want. God's going to guilt trip me. Maybe this is like the worst fear. God's not going to show up. He's going to turn his cold shoulder on me because I don't deserve, I don't deserve him. I don't deserve his grace. Let me tell you something from my personal experience. When I have turned to God, God has never done any of those things. Never. And I'm learning to trust. The longer I've walked with God, I'm learning to trust. He's not actually interested in guilt tripping me. He's not interested in making me rehearse my sin before him play by play and making me listen to his commentary. He simply wants my honesty. He wants my heart. And he's actually right there. He's not far away. I don't have to go find him under a rock. He's there waiting. As soon as I turn to him, he's there. And as I begin to turn to him, I begin to taste again the spaciousness of his love and the freedom of his presence. Let me share another pattern of resistance I've noticed in my own life. It's the opposite kind of experience when everything is going really well. I'm busy. My days are full with good things. Life is great. I'm feeling productive. And I'm not necessarily leaning on God heavily for anything because I don't actually have any really urgent needs that I'm praying about. Things are going great. And then I notice maybe just a subtle distance beginning to seep into my relationship with God. And before long... I'm resisting rather than embracing the opportunity to spend time with God in his word or in prayer. I'm forgetting to thank him for things. I'm not bothering to invite him into the the little details of my day. What about you? What do you notice in your own life are patterns of resistance to God? I want to share with you a definition of devotion. Devotion in the Christian life is simply, I believe, our choosing to walk toward God rather than away from him. But that's not just a choice we make one time. It's a choice that we make again and again in many different ways and situations, day in and day out. Every hour that we have, every minute, every day that we have, we're in a place where we could walk toward God or away from him. If we choose to walk toward him, even if it's the tiniest step, that's devotion. Devotion isn't the number of hours you pray for a day. It's not how much of the Bible you read every day. Those are good things. We should be praying and reading the scripture. But devotion is about choosing to turn toward God at every opportunity that we have instead of away from God. So, What should we do then when we find ourselves choosing to walk away from God instead of toward him? And what I hope will be helpful here is I'd like to suggest three tools that can help us navigate our resistance to God. I hope that these are practical tools. And the first is simply this, to recognize resistance. 
Our inner resistances to God are really subtle, especially at first. I think we usually don't even notice that we're resisting God at first. And, and I think they start right here in the gut. That's at least where my experience is, right? And I think that's because that's where shame starts, right? That's where shame lives. The good news is that the Spirit of God wants to help us to see our resistance. He wants to work with us so that we can recognize it. And one way that's been helpful for me is simply listening to my feelings, like getting better at that, learning how to do that better, listening to my feelings, and also just paying attention to the state of my soul. You know you have a good friend when, they'll be, when they're willing to ask you from time to time about the state of your soul. I wish I had more people asking me that question in my life. How is the state of your soul? Is my soul restless? Is it irritated? Is it apathetic? Well, I wonder why. What's behind that? What's going on? Once I've noticed the resistance in me, I find it's really important to name it, to label it. I need to be able to step back, point to this pattern and say, oh yeah, I'm resisting God again. That's what's going on, right? I can name it. When you can step back, see what's happening and name it, then I have the power to choose what I'm going to do with it. Because when we recognize something well enough to name it, then we have the freedom and the power to choose how we're going to respond. But we can't respond to our resistance if we don't recognize it at first. So the second tool is simply to remain in God's presence. Now, in the story that we read, Peter was in Christ's presence, right? He was in Christ's presence, but he started to pull away. To remain in God's presence, we essentially have to stop pulling away, right? We have to stop that momentum. How do we do that? Can I share just a a really concrete tool that has been helpful for me? And it's simply using my body as a tool, right? Using my body as a tool to stop pulling away from God. It's, a, it's really just a trick that I play on myself. And this is not my own idea. I'm just drawing on ancient Christian practices here. For instance, I may be avoiding God by just being really busy. I'm cleaning all the pots and pans. I'm dusting what doesn't even need to be dusted, right? I, I don't have words for a prayer right now. Even if I did, my heart doesn't feel ready to meet with God, but I know something's got to give. So I can stop and kneel in the middle of the room or go to my room or whatever and just be silent And let my body assume a posture of submission to God or worship to God or however you want to say that. And let my body be the prayer that my heart and my mind aren't yet able to pray. And eventually my heart and my mind will catch up and I realize that God's there, right? That's all it takes. I just sort of harness my body and let my my body respond and my heart and my mind catch up. Another way of using my body as a tool for release, uh, sorry, for ceasing uh, from resisting God, for me, is simply to just uh, open the scripture to one of my go-to psalms. Do you guys have any go-to psalms or passages in the scripture? I think we all kind of need them. It's a good thing to read broadly, but man, I, I, could, I will never get tired of going back to Psalm 16, Psalm 23, Isaiah 40, whatever. What are your go-to Psalms? Because sometimes we need to also have those 
passages to go to so that we don't have to think. We don't have to be like, oh, where is there a place that's going to encourage me? No, I'm just, I'm just so used to flipping to these, these passages, and I, and I know that God is going to meet me there because he, he keeps meeting me there. So um, what, I, what I found helpful is to go to one of those go-to psalms, open it up, and read it aloud, right? This is like obedience. This isn't a heartfelt prayer. This is me oh, oh, just being obedient. I'm going to open the scripture. I'm going to go to that scripture, and I'm going to read it aloud, and then I'm going to read it aloud again. Maybe sit there for a little bit of silence and then read it again. And I find that I don't have to have a prayer in my heart or in my mind because the psalm becomes my prayer. And as I say them, eventually my own prayer emerges in that psalm. The psalm becomes my prayer. So remain in God's presence. Use your body as a tool to help you to do this, trusting that your heart and your mind will follow. And the last tool that I want to mention here um, to resisting um, God is receive God's love. Can I just say that I think these three words for me encapsulate what the Christian life is about more than almost any three words. Because when we receive God's love, it changes us. And when we're changed, little by little, the world changes around us and God's kingdom is coming. But receiving God's love is something that we are really quick to forget how to do, isn't it? So much of the time, I, 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 I'm, I'm convinced that we're living off of the love we received last week or last year or even last decade or that somebody else has received. And it's just kind of like spilling over a little bit into our lives, right? We're, we're, we can be good at talking about his love or studying what the Bible has to say about his love, maybe even telling others about God's love. But how good are we at actually receiving his love, letting his love flourish in us? I don't think it's hard to receive God's love. I don't think it's complicated. I think it's simply a matter of whether we're willing to be with God as a child. Let me tell you a little secret. You don't actually have to have figured out your theology to receive God's love. You don't have to have perfect belief to receive God's love. Here's the best way I know to receive God's love. Search the scriptures for one verse, a verse that would seem to be maybe God's invitation to you. Write it down, read it, read it aloud to yourself so you hear your voice speaking it. Memorize it. Let it get into your heart. Let it get into your bones. And as you speak it over yourself, begin to hear the words as Jesus himself whispering them to you, the Father's heart being given to you, and then dare to walk in the light of the truth of those words and see what happens. See what happens. Friends, receiving God's love is our hope, right? This is what will carry us through hard times. This is what's going to sustain our faith even to the end. Receiving his love. So as we wrap up today, let's just return to the story of Peter and, and Jesus, because I want to I I land on the end of that story. How does Jesus respond to Peter's resistance? The scripture says, then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. 
Do you see how Jesus meets Peter more than halfway here? Would you do a thought exercise with me? How do you think the story of Peter's life would have been different if Jesus had honored Peter's request to depart from him? Peter would have probably been a fisherman for the rest of his days rather than a fisher of men. He would probably have had a great story to tell about a man, a rabbi, who he met one day who performed this miraculous catch of fish, but he would not have known what it was like to walk with this man, to travel with him, to watch this man interact with other people, to watch him teach other people, to watch him heal other people. He would not have borne witness to Jesus's death, and he would not have borne witness to Jesus's resurrection. Peter also would not have become a new man with a new purpose. He would have not have been given a new name. We see that he's called Simon here, right? And later in the scripture, one day Jesus pulls Peter aside and he says, uh, I'm going to call you Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't honor Peter's request. And I believe that when we're resisting God, when we're in that place that Peter was in, when we're pulling back, we're hiding from him like Adam and Eve, he says the same thing that he said to Peter to us. He says, do not be afraid. Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Well, you might have noticed the table up front here that we have set up today. This table is set up with some symbols of Christ's presence. The illumination, which speaks to us of Christ, the light of the world, right? The bread, which speaks to us of Jesus, the bread of life. And the grapes, um, because his blood flowed for us like wine from the fruit of the vine. And also on this table up here are some cards, some red cards that remind us of Jesus's blood, which sealed his love for us. And on those cards are a verse, a whole bunch of different verses. Each one of those cards with each one of those verses speaks of God's love for us. And also with those verses are two questions. And I'm not going to ask them of you now. You'll have to read them on the card. But these questions are designed to help you see through the distortion that we tend to project on God because of sin and to receive his love. And and essentially what this table is a picture of is what we get when we cease from resisting and we remain in his presence and we receive his love. When we come to God, we don't get disappointment. We don't get anger. We don't get an intensification of our shame. We get nourishment for our souls. We get light for our path and we get a covering, Jesus's blood as a covering for our shame. And so I'm going to invite the band up. Uh, um, And as an invitation for a, a taste and see moment response here, what I'd like to invite us to do, if you are comfortable, is to come forward And you'll be able to come forward just down um, each aisle and come to the table and take one of uh, these red cards with the verses on it and bring that back and and, and read the verse and and see what God might want to speak to you through that verse and those questions and maybe hold on to that this week and revisit it if, if um, if you would.
Um, But I invite you to come up not just as a functional act of taking one of those verses. I want to invite you to come up as a symbolic act of moving toward God rather than away from God. Perhaps you've been resisting God in a little way or a large way. Maybe you don't have the words to come back to him in prayer. You don't know what to say. Your heart isn't quite there. This is an opportunity for you to do what we've been talking about and respond with your body, trusting that your heart and your mind will follow. Maybe you're in a great place with God, but one day you will resist God. Peter did. He swore he wouldn't, but he did. So I invite you to come forward as a prophetic act of how you will respond when that day comes and you realize, I'm resisting God, that you will in that day take a step closer from him rather than away from him. And maybe today all of this is very new for you. Maybe you're not a believer, but maybe something has moved you today in one of the songs or in the story about Peter and Jesus or maybe just seeing the, the, the family of God together and the love that is here among us in this room. And so I would invite you, if you are comfortable, to step forward, even if you haven't figured out what you believe yet, but just to step forward as a way of expressing to God that you would like to come closer to him. He will meet you. Let's pray. Father, we are sinful people. We live under a curse of shame and it distorts our perception of you. And we regret that. And we pray that you would forgive us, Lord, for seeing you as an angry God or a disappointed God, for failing to see your love for us. Would you teach us how to receive your love again? Make us hungry again for your love, Lord, because it is our hope. And we thank you, Lord, that you came and you, um, you showed us your love. And you bled for us, Lord. You have given so much to us. And we thank you. And we just respond, Lord, in our hearts by ceasing to resist you, returning to your presence, using our bodies as tools to submit to you, to worship you, and trusting, Lord, that you will meet us, you will help our hearts, our minds to follow. Thank you for giving us the courage to respond to you. Thank you that there is no fear in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're listening to the official podcast of Church of the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church of the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.com.